On Wednesday nights, we're studying the book of Genesis, and we're ready to consider chapter 29 of Genesis this evening. We're going to read verses 15 through 30. Genesis chapter 29 and verses 15 through 30, we pick up where we left off in Jacob's experience as he begins to learn to trust the Lord and to walk by faith. And as we have seen with Abraham and Isaac, we see again with Jacob that learning to walk by faith is a process. And if there's anything that we can learn from studying these patriarchs, these men of faith that that God identifies himself with, he always is referred to, he's often referred to, I should say, as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we see some of the faults and limitations of these individuals, it it should encourage us to know that God can use us, that he can make us men and women of faith. And, and that statement is not a, an excuse or a justification for sin or carnality, but it is something that should bring us encouragement knowing that we are just vessels of clay. And in the Psalms we read that the, the Lord remembers that we are fragile and that we are just vessels of clay. But he places within those frail, fragile vessels the very precious treasure of the very life of Jesus Christ. And we need to allow that life in us to shine forth every day. And, but it takes that daily dependence on the Lord, recognizing we can't do it. I can't live the Christian life in my own strength. But the Christ in me, he's able to make me sufficient, to be a sufficient worker in the work of the Lord. So let's read in verse 15 of Genesis 29. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. And Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they, they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. That would go well on a Hallmark card, wouldn't it? He loved her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. And Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a feast. Now it came to pass in the evening that he took Leah, his daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. And Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. And so it came to pass in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It's just not the custom. Fulfill her week, talking about a a week of marital bliss where the, the new couple separate themselves from everyone else for a week. So fulfill her week. And we will give you this one also for the service which you will serve with me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. 
So he gave him his daughter Rachel as a wife also. In other words, within one week, he's got two wives now. And Laban gave his maid Billah to his daughter Rachel as a maid. Then Jacob also went in to Rachel, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. The first question I guess we should ask ourselves is, why did God allow Laban to deceive Jacob when God had promised to protect and to provide for Jacob? And yet after that promise, we see that God allowed Laban to deceive Jacob. And it wasn't a small deceit. He, he had labored seven long years for his love, Rachel. And then he was deceived and given the older daughter, Leah. Often men and women of faith find themselves in circumstances and situations that seem to contradict the promises of God. We see it all through the scripture. We see it, we're going to see it in Joseph's life when, he, when we get there. We've seen it in Paul's life. We see, we see it in men and women of faith throughout history where it appears like God is not holding up his end of the deal. He's not fulfilling his promises. And yet, when it's all said and done, God's purposes are fulfilled. He fulfills his word. And he often uses those negative circumstances and situations to actually accomplish what he wants to accomplish for eternity. But we have a tendency to focus on the now and in the moment. And if there's pain in the moment, if there's loss in the moment, that's what we seem to focus on. But as men and women of faith, we have to learn to focus on the eternal plan of God for our life and for the world, for the church, but for our own life. He's working, he's dealing with us with eternity in mind. And so when we find ourselves tempted to ask if God has abandoned us or if he's failed us, we need to stop and get that heavenly perspective, that eternal perspective on our situation. It's the only way that we can obey the commands to give thanks for everything and end everything. Otherwise, I, I can't give thanks for tragedy, for loss, but from the eternal perspective, I can. It's the only way that I can have joy unspeakable is if I have that heavenly, eternal perspective in every circumstance in my life. But it takes faith. It takes stopping and getting that eternal perspective on your circumstance and on your, your situation. God has never promised us that we would always be comfortable or that we would never have any unpleasant circumstances in our life. He's never promised that there would not be people that would mistreat us. You don't find those promises in Scripture. You do find Romans 8.28 that all things work together for our good. We know that. We know it because God's told us that. But we often forget it in the moment of tragedy or sorrow or mistreatment or being misunderstood. God can use and will use, if we live by faith, if we live to honor him, he will use even those negative, sometimes tragic things to do exactly what needs to be done in your life. That's what he tells us. Can we believe it? It's difficult. It's only by faith that we can lay hold of that. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4, another familiar passage, but one that makes it clear how we need to refocus in times of trial, in times of difficulty. 
2 Corinthians 4:16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. In the trial, we often lose heart, don't we? We get discouraged. We begin to neglect the things that God tells us we are to occupy ourselves in. Therefore, do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. All right, did we get that? I know this is familiar, and I know I harp on it every time I read it. It's one of my favorite passages. It's one that brings me comfort when when I can't understand what God is doing or why he's allowing what he allows. It's working for me. Light afflictions. Paul was talking about being stoned with stones, being left for dead, being beat up, being put in jail. And he calls it a light affliction because he was comparing it with the glory that should be revealed in him later in eternity. And in comparison with that, those were minor things. And he says it's but for a moment. Well, it lasted his entire adult life from the point that he accepted Jesus Christ till the time that they took off his head. But it was just for a moment. Again, in comparison to eternity, and this is why he ends in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our finite mind has a hard time grasping that. We deal with what we can see, what we can touch, and we think that's real, that, that's reality, what we can see and touch. But this reality that we put so much confidence in, it's all going to burn up. It's all going to pass away. But the plans and the purposes of God, they are eternal. And we haven't seen the end of those. We haven't received some of those eternal promises yet. But those are the things that are going to be forever. We need to focus on that. So to, to answer the question why God allowed, we'll probably never know all the answers on this side anyway. We might know on the other side if, if it matters to us then. But as I contemplated that, because when I read these things, I ask these questions all the time. Well, why did God, he just promised he'd take care of him, of Jacob. Why did he let this happen? One reason might be because God wanted to teach Jacob the principle that's found in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. Let's turn there. Galatians 6 and verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Now, how do you suppose that would apply to Jacob? Anyone have a thought there? How would that apply to Jacob? Deception. He kind of knows something about deception, doesn't he? He deceived his father. He deceived his brother. He sowed some seeds, and now he's on the other end of it. And God was trying to show Jacob, this is not how we do things when we live by faith. We don't rely on carnal means to accomplish the will and the purpose of God. And so he's teaching Jacob that what he did to Isaac and to, to his brother was not the way to do things. And now he knows what it feels like. Now, the grace of God is sufficient for when we fall short. But the grace of God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. There are always scars for sin. 
Now, for the child of God that repents, let's go to 1 John 1. Thank God there is forgiveness and there's restoration. The moment we truly repent of our sin and turn from, from that sin to God, we are immediately cleansed from the stain of that sin. We are forgiven and our fellowship with God is restored. That's the grace of God. Thank God for that aspect of the grace of God because we all have failed at times and we will fail. We don't have to, but our nature is, is weak. And when in a moment of neglect or rebellion, we may fall. But the grace of God, if we'll acknowledge it, return to obedience to the will of God, there's restoration according to 1 John 1, 7 through 10. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess, there is this condition. Before there's forgiveness and restoration, there's a condition that needs to be fulfilled on our part. If we confess our sins, say about it what God says about it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. True repentance will shield us from any lasting eternal loss. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.31. You can just jot it down if you want. 1 Corinthians 11.31. For if we judge ourselves, we would not be judged. To me, that, that, that's such a magnificent provision of the grace of God. First of all, he saves me apart from my works. He saves me because Jesus loved me and gave his life for me. But then as his child, when I fall short of doing his will, when I sin, if I will acknowledge that sin, leave it, and return to obedience, according to Paul's teaching here, I won't face that sin before the judgment seat of Christ. There won't be loss for that. Thank God for that eternal provision of his grace. And so our joy and our peace and our contentment is found in knowing that God has forgiven us. But too often I have dealt with Christians that sin and then repent and then demand that everybody respect them and treat them in a certain way as if they had never sinned. And they expect everyone, they demand everyone to treat them with that kind of approach. They demand it. But that's not true repentance. True repentance always produces humility. Again, our joy and our peace is knowing that God has forgiven us, not in demanding that everybody else treat us in a certain way. We should understand that it's going to take a while to rebuild confidence, for others to have confidence in us. And that's okay. They need to see that we are truly walking in, in the will of God. And so we don't demand anything. If we've fallen short... We don't have a right to demand anything. We have joy and peace because we know God's forgiveness. That, that's solid. That's our solid foundation. And with time, our brothers and sisters can see that change in us, but we need to give them that time as well. The forgiveness is instant when we come before God. But saints, there's always scars to sin. God's grace will be sufficient to deal with the scars, but why not avoid the scarring altogether? Jacob had deceived his own father and disrespected his brother. And now Jacob's on the other end of that. And obviously, 
Jacob doesn't like being deceived. But notice that his response to being deceived, because I think he was beginning to understand what God was trying to teach him, his response to being deceived was quite a bit different than Esau's response. When Esau was deceived by Jacob, what did Esau do? He threatened to kill his brother, didn't he? We don't see that reaction to Jacob. In fact, even after he's received both wives, he continues to stay on to fulfill his responsibility for seven more years. Now, if he was going to respond with carnality and with arrogance, he could have threatened to kill Laban. Or at the very least, he could have just snatched Rachel and ran away. But those would not have been responses of faith. He was going to trust God. That even in this situation that appeared to be a contradiction to God's promise, he continued to trust God that he was going to do, that God was going to do what he said he would do. And that when he returned back to his father in, in, the, in the land of Canaan, that God was going to bless him when he went back. He believed that. And, of course, that's exactly what God did. God did not direct. He did not cause Laban to deceive and for Jacob to have this, this family that was growing so fast and, and, as we will see in the next portion, it was augmenting fast. But that was part of God's plan and purpose, wasn't it? So God was using even these, these things that were involving carnal choices and deceit. And that's a lesson that we can learn. It doesn't matter what man does. God is going to fulfill his purposes. In other words, sinful, carnal man cannot overthrow the purposes of God. And that gives me great peace and joy, knowing that God's going to fulfill his word in me. Now, for me to enter into the fullness of that, I have to live by faith. Jacob had to learn to live by faith. I do too. But when I choose to believe him, the world can't take away from me what God's promised me. Satan can't take away from me what God's promised me, not in this life and not in eternity. So why would I fear? I'll trust him. But again, Jacob had to learn this, and I, I believe we see him beginning to, to learn these lessons of faith. Instead of being angry and threatening to kill Laban, and he just humbly accepts that he has to serve seven more years. That was a man of integrity. He made the right choice there. As I mentioned, too many think of God's grace as... And his forgiveness is a cheap, get-out-of-jail-free card. So let's enjoy, because the Bible tells us there is pleasure in sin for a while, a season. There's a moment of pleasure in, in a lot of sin. And so if you have this concept that, well, I'm going to go ahead and sin and, and, and have this moment of joy and pleasure in sin, and then I'll just ask God to forgive me, and then I'll be and restored and everything's fine. That is a lie of Satan that has trapped so many of God's people. Sin never is worth it. It always leaves some kind of loss or, or scar in your life that's unnecessary. Thank God for that grace that restores us when there's genuine repentance. But sin never pays. And we need to know that. Once you have a, a revelation of what sin really is, there, there's not really a, a great draw to do it. Oh, I'm envious of those who can do that. I wish I could do that, but oh, I'm a Christian. No, I'm glad God delivered me from that. He, he protects me from that when I hide his word in my heart and when I surrender to it. It's never profitable to sin. 
And so I believe that God allowing Jacob to be deceived was not just just punishment, but was also education. And sometimes they go hand in hand. And in Hebrews, let's turn to Hebrews. We'll close with this tonight, but let's read Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11, so that we understand that God allowed Laban to deceive Jacob. He didn't make him. He didn't force him. God allowed Laban to do what was in his heart, which was evil, which was wrong. But yet God used even the evil choices of Laban to ultimately bless Jacob and to fulfill his promise of bringing in the Messiah through Abraham's descendants. There was discipline involved, but there was also training involved in allowing Jacob to go through this experience, Hebrews 12.5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Greek word that's translated chastening or chasten here in this passage has a dual meaning. It does have that that meaning of discipline, uh, correction, when something is done wrong. But it also has the meaning of education and training. Not that you've done something wrong, but this is how you do this. There's education involved. There's training. And so I believe that this experience that Jacob went through was both of those things. A little bit of discipline. Uh, Now you're on the other end of being deceived but also training. I will take care of you. I don't need your scheming, Jacob. I don't need your carnal means. I will protect you, and I will take care of you. God's discipline is always, even when it is correction for something that we do wrong, God's discipline is always to educate us in doing his will, that we might have his best in this life and eternity. I think Jacob is a good example of that. I think we'll close there this evening.